Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 1 for the entire chapter. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. This is the word of the Lord. As we enter the seventh week of COVID-19 shelter-in-place orders, we find ourselves confronted with two serious and equally sincere responses within the culture at large. The health priority response says, 
Stay quarantined for as long as it takes to reduce the number of coronavirus cases and death, to protect essential personnel and frontline workers, and to keep my family and me away from possible contact with the virus. This group effectively thinks toward those wanting to lift the quarantine orders, you are going to give the virus to all of us. And in worse thoughts, I hope you catch it and the hospitals make you wait last to get treatment, vaccine, or cure, or refuse to serve you at all since you are willing to risk health and life for all of us. On the other hand, the Freedom Priority Response says, Open up the economy now so that we can save those who are about to go under financially. Bailouts and handouts are one thing, but we have the right and freedom to work and make a living. This group effectively feels toward those wanting to keep quarantine orders. You are going to give poverty to all of us. And in worse thoughts, you are wrong for allowing others to take away our rights so that no one may offer your frady cat healthy body any financial help in and when all of this is over. The two responses portray two different ethical emphases socially, revealing the mind-body dualism that is common to human philosophies. The polarized responses also reveal different ways we view rights and freedoms politically, at least in the U.S., in light of the role of the individual, the citizenry, the individual states and their rights, and the scopes of the authority and role of the federal government. Moreover, the two responses also reveal something significant theologically and spiritually that could help us navigate a non-polarized, unified social and political response to the pandemic and all issues in society. A response that would equally benefit all and preempt many disparities in the contraction and the provision of the treatment of the virus. Theologically and spiritually, the two responses manifest our continuing need for the law of God and a right understanding of it in order to make peaceful and prosperous societal members. They display a need for the commandments to guide and order the church in culture. Or rather, they display the powerful opportunity for the call to love God and love neighbor to show why Christ is the hope for peace and joy today and for the healing of our world. When we enter Exodus 20, we read of the Lord speaking. He is revealing himself to his people, ancient Israel, as the God atop Mount Sinai. God's display is known as a theophany. It is an appearance like in epiphany, of God, theo, like in theology. In this theophany, God comes to Israel as one to be feared. He comes in a thick, dark cloud with flashes of lightning and increasingly louder sound of the blast of a trumpet that God himself is producing and large peals of thunder that make the mountain itself shake. 
combined with commands for people and animals to stay away from the mountain at the threat of death for even touching the mountain, the entire display rightly causes trembling in all of the people even before the Lord gives the commands as one sees in Exodus 19. It is into this frightful quaking, deafening meeting with God that Exodus 20 instructs us on four things about the power of the law of the two loves we are to have for God and all people. Number one, the law of loving God reveals to us a redeeming, jealous, and righteous judge who desires to share his rest with us. That's in verses 1 through 11. In the first four of the Ten Commandments, God tells us how we should treat him and regard him. We understand these commandments and commands of love because to love the Lord with all of one's heart, soul, mind, and strength is a reference to these first four laws or what we call the first tablet of the law of the two tablets of the commandments given to Moses. Why does God give these particular commandments? First, they reveal the one who redeemed Israel from their slavery in Egypt. When Israel was under the oppressive power of Egypt, it was the Lord who sent the plagues, bringing them out through the Red Sea on dry land and drowning their oppressors in the sea. Israel did not free herself from slavery. The holy and powerful God freed her. This is how you relate to that God. You do not have gods before him that are impotent to save. Second, they make him known as a jealous and just God. You do not try to domesticate, domesticate the Redeemer to a form you can handle seeing and control. For then you would set your affections on that image of God rather than the true God who has no limits. If you did that, you would make the God who loves you jealous as you go after another lover. The jealousy would make him take actions to save you from the error of your ways because only in having him as God can you experience all of the benefits of redemption. To have another God would be detrimental and foolish toward our own prosperity. Rightly, the real and true God would bring judgment upon our choices to turn from his love for us for our own prosperity's sake. Zeal for our prosperity rather than hatred is why God must be a righteous judge. Third, the commandments intend to offer us God's rest. Keeping the Sabbath puts work and rest in the right perspectives so that we do not dishonor him by overworking, underworking, or not worshiping. Overworking could make one miss corporate worship due to thinking you are responsible for your own provision. You are not. God is. Underworking could make corporate worship optional because the force of work that drives us toward a merciful God would be missing. In both extremes, God holds out rest in him as the right option in order to maximize the joys of both work 
and worship. He is a God who invites us to rest. Second, or number two, the law of loving our neighbor as we love ourselves reveals to us the Lord's plan for blessing all of society. That's in verses 12 through 17. The remaining six commandments identified together as the second greatest commandment in the New Testament, intended for everyone in ancient Israelite society to relate to one another rightly, where they were to do these six commandments and all they apply at all times, they would have been loving one another. Or in other words, if they were to love one another the way each of them loved themselves individually, there would be no need for these six separate commands. Or again, we only need law and laws because we will not love others to the fullest extent on our own. Here is what I mean. When we love others in fullness, we do not need legislation to direct us to wear masks and practice social distancing. Neither do we need rulings to reopen society. But law and laws are needed because love does not operate in fullness. We won't love others to fullness on our own. This understanding of love requires an understanding that differs from prevalent ideas in modern culture. As New Testament scholar D.A. Carson has said, quote, the love of God in our culture has been purged of anything the culture deems uncomfortable, unquote. Instead, we must define love of neighbor as an active consideration of the good of the other above ourselves that flows from setting our affections on the other. This idea of love carries both the rule of righteous treatment and the idea of feeling empathy, emotion, and affection toward people. To have love, you must have both right rule and affection. For example, when the governor says, don't go outside, during the virus and gathering groups. The governor is making an edict with no real affection toward me or you. He might be loving in a limited political leadership sense, but has no affection for me that will give him joy if I stay in my house or sorrow if I meet my demise by going out. He's not coming to my funeral. But his rule is necessary for me to do what is right towards you only because everyone will not do this on their own. However, when my middle daughter says to me, Daddy, please don't go outside. She has affections toward both joy and sorrow that are being fueled by years of play together overcoming misunderstandings, investment in each other's well-being, many french fries and chicken nuggets shared, doing homework late nights, going on vacations as a family, being at each other's milestone events, and working through each other's illnesses and shortcomings patiently. She has affections for me that fuel her plea. That affection is what Christ commands us to have for every person in society. Yes, it's ideal. 
so that we don't have to have laws against murder, theft, and adultery. Such affection has righteous rule behind it because it is secondary to loving a fearful Redeemer. See, loving others rightly requires us to set our affection on God and not simply have right practices wrote. God is not asking us to gather for worship, participate in a form of Christian education, volunteer in some aspect of church giving opportunities, meet with men's, women's, youth, married, divorced, single, or seniors groups, do a daily Bible study reading and pray as simple habits that are right to do without feelings for him and others. Instead, the Lord wants us to have right priorities accompanied by a very real and acute sense of affection for God. That is, Lord, I am coming to you in worship by my bedside because I love you and I long to be in your presence. <coughs> Excuse me. I am longing to know you through the people in my specialized life stage group and for all to enjoy you together. I long to be with them not because I am lonely or isolated, but because I long for their presence and voices and touch and smiles and knowledge and hurts that make your redemption known to us. I long to give of myself sacrificially to them, even if it means I gain nothing tangible from them in return, knowing I am loving you and being loved by you as I serve them. This attitude is what fuels do not commit adultery. For adultery is the act of a user, not a lover. It is the act of a person who is selfish toward his or her family and toward the illicit sexual partner, looking only for self-gratification without rule of fidelity or love for one's own spouse, children, extended family, or the family of the illicit partner. And if this is you, by the way, you need to repent from those acts immediately. Turn away from that other person and come back to where you're supposed to have fidelity. Come clean today before you meet the just judgment of a jealous God. This attitude is what motivates do not covet. For covetousness has no love for God as a holy, faithful, good, all-sufficient, and joy-giving person and friend. It has no affection that exalts your neighbor over the neighbor's possessions, whether that is the other person's spouse, children, parents, friendships, degree, place of education, project at work, or position on a team. By coveting, we diminish the other person and our affection for him or her, making that one an entity with nothing but things. And no, they are no one but someone to envy and not a person who we wish to see enjoy their own possessions. We instead want to enjoy their possessions over them. And in some cases, 
We want to make them recognize our enjoyment of their same things and have them esteem us for our possessions of them. We would have them enjoy us, but we would not enjoy them. All keeping up with the Joneses comes from a lack of loving God and loving neighbor. Three, the law of the two loves reveals our need for a mediator. That's in Exodus 20, verses 18 through 21. After God speaks out of the theophany, we see words that help us understand the key to loving a God we cannot see and loving others. It would seem that the theophany only causes the people to tremble in fear. But bear in mind that they are hearing God speak these words to Moses, as Exodus 19.9 tells us. They are in fear of the voice of this fiery, loud, mountain-shaking God. This is why they cry out for Moses to speak to them rather than have God reveal himself directly as he has been doing. Here is what Moses does as a mediator. First, Moses speaks on behalf of God so the people will not die from encountering God. Inherently, the people understand that the commandments of this redeeming, jealous, and just God are impossible to keep. If they break these commands, they will meet this God. That's just too much. They will die without someone to step between them and God. Second, Moses reveals God is trying to keep the people from sinning. The revelation of a holy God is to keep you and I from doing wrong before him. To break one of these commands is to miss the standard of righteousness of the God who is atop Mount Sinai in the thick darkness and who has set commandments for us to relate to him rightly and to all others rightly. As mediator, Moses reveals a God who does not want us to sin against him or against others. Third, as the only one safely going up and down the mountain to God and to carry his brother Aaron to God, Moses alone qualifies to speak as God's representative. The people cannot approach that thick thunderous darkness because they do not have an invitation to do so. But through Moses, they can meet with their God. Four, the law of the two loves places priority on rightly worshiping God when we are gathered together. Exodus 22, 20 verses 22 through 26. The point of the prohibitions and commands given after Moses approaches God in the thick darkness that finishes out this whole chapter, these prohibitions and commands against the idols and their materials, the materials for the altars, the steps, and showing one's nakedness all have to do with things that would be distracting in worship. Idols take away. Poor materials take away, 
and others seeing your nakedness under your clothing as you go up steps would take worship away from God and place it on us as objects. God already can see what's under our clothes. But if we were to go up steps with inappropriately covered dress, others also would see this in ancient Israelite dress. And that would be a problem. No one would be looking at God at that time. Corporate worship is about loving God, about setting our affection on him in a manner that we all approach him rightly. God is the priority of the Ten Commandments. That is why we immediately come back to instructions on how to approach him. If I do not fear his voice, I will mistreat his person. And these commandments assume that he is a person whom you and I can mistreat. If I do that, I have no certain basis then to treat you right. I might do so because I think some things are right to do culturally. But if I choose not to, I could get away with my wrongdoing and never do right towards you. However, if God is standing atop a mountain blazing in fire and thundering, and I know he is commanding me to honor my father and mother, you better believe I am going to honor my father and mother at all times. I don't want to meet up with that God on the wrong side. Now, the Ten Commandments as laws of love have several implications, but here are just four of them. Number one, so that we do not lose sight of the commandments, we should practice them like the Lord's Prayer and read them as part of growing as a Christian. You understand that in the New Testament, the Lord's Prayer appears twice, once in Matthew and once in Luke. In the one time, it is given as a model or instructions on how we should pray and the different elements of the Lord's Prayer give us means by which we pray rightly. But in the other account of the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer is actually given as something that we should pray as part of our regular practice. It is something that we should use in our prayers daily. It is not wrong to pray the Lord's Prayer daily. In praying the Lord's Prayer daily, we learn the elements that should be part of all of our prayers. In the same way, if we learn the commandments and make them part of all we do regularly as a believer, we won't become those who are legalists. Instead, we will become those who love God because the first four commandments will be second nature to our thinking, and we will love our neighbor because the next six commandments will be part or becoming part of who we are. Number two, we should ask God to resensitize us to his holiness while helping us to fight legalism. God doesn't command me to remove myself from foul language, even though he does ask me not to speak his name wrongly. I can't get away from foul language. It is everywhere around me. But that doesn't mean that the prevalent use of such language should make me comfortable with such language. In holiness, I 
will not use the Lord's name in vain. I, you, we, we should not use the Lord's name in vain. We should not use it like an incantation to get our earthly desires or like a talisman that brings us fortunes that we are seeking. Neither will we use his name as a form of foul language. We will not use his name like people misuse words to express excrement, description of dog gender, irreverent condemnations, or base terminology for sexual acts. God is not base, irreverent, dehumanized, or common. So his name should not be treated that way, least we and others think that he is common. He is holy. Here too is our solution to our present polarization. In setting my affection on my neighbors for their highest good at my expense, because God is my only God and safety, community, and personal material survival are not my gods, I will refrain from participating in actions that prioritize my freedom over others, my desire for proximate friendship over their desire for distance, and my personal provision over their need for financial assistance, all the while seeking the Lord to take care of my financial and my friendship and my freedom needs. So I will also give to food banks and the like and seek ways to help those unemployed and those who own small businesses. In setting my affections on my neighbors for their highest good at my expense, because God is my God, and freedom, individual comfortability, and economic survival are not my gods, I also will seek to participate in actions that prioritize my neighbor's safety, that provide for opportunities to participate in community, and that allow for those not in as much need for a restart of the economy not to have my demands forced upon them. Three, each of us should guard how we approach the Lord corporately. While we have seen that our sanctuaries are places that allow for holding coffee cups and having extremely casual dress, since the Lord is present among us, even on Sundays when we are not taking the Lord's Supper together, we should not be less casual in our approach to Him than we are to being on time to our places of employment. We are not in worship to be seen. We gather in worship to see him and to be seen by him in mercy. For we remember that every person at Sinai deserved to die, but the Lord, looking down on them, allowed them to live in mercy. Four, we should praise Jesus for the great mediatorial work he has done on our behalf now and that he will do for us for all of eternity. How is it that the world will experience the great healing that comes through what Christ has done in dying for sin and in rising again from the dead? Christ acts as the mediator who speaks on behalf of God, being the only one who can enter the presence of God and also come down to us. 
He is the one who reveals that God does not want us to sin against him. He is the one who provides for us toward God so that God's redemption from sin, God's zeal for our righteousness, God's justice upon sin, and God's rest will come to each one of us and one day to the whole world. It is Christ, the mediator, who stands between God and us on behalf of God and representing us, who will provide a society in which we all will love God fully and all of us will love our neighbor to the fullest extent. As Jonathan Edwards rightly said, heaven is a world of love. All the law and the prophets of the Hebrew Bible hang on these two commands, to love God with all one's heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. The goal of all scripture is to love God and neighbor. When we love God and neighbor, we will have the world we all want to see. But we cannot do it on our own. We only can do it as Christ the mediator reveals God to us, removes sin from us, and gives God's rest to us. Oh, how we love Jesus, because as the redeeming God, he first loved us. Let's pray. And now, Father, we thank you for your redeeming love through Jesus, our mediator allows us to approach a redeeming, jealous, and just God who offers us the fullness of his rest. Cause us to rightly navigate life in this world as those who love you among all things as the highest priority and who also love our neighbors as ourselves. Do this, Father, so that we can have a glimpse in this world of all the fullness that you intend to give us in the world to come. We give you thanks, Lord Jesus, and we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.